0: Talent Talk centers on the topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. These are all timely topics for CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and business leaders. We hope that as you tune in to listen each week, whether to the live broadcast or to the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, that you hear something you can take away that will help you grow and impact your career in a positive way. And now, here's the host of the Talent Talk Radio Show, the founder and CEO of People G 2 Chris Dyer.
1: Good afternoon, and thank you for tuning in here to the Talent Talk Radio Show and joining me as I speak to two uh, really talented people uh, today on the show. Uh, if this happens to be the first time you're tuning in, or maybe it's been a while, kind of give you a little recap on really what the show's all about and how we work things here. Um, you know, what generally happens is I have the privilege of, of meeting some of these inspiring leaders, whether it's running into them on LinkedIn or at a conference or a group or uh, just uh, m- maybe they've done something uh, particularly special in an area of talent, and so As we run across these people, normally what I would do is try to have a conversation with them and learn things from them. But instead, we've taken this to uh, this format where bringing our conversation uh, out into the world and allowing everyone to listen in on the conversation we're about to have and hopefully allowing you to hear something or learn something that you can use. So this show is really designed to give you an opportunity to to hear these different topics that maybe you might be able to use uh, in your own career down the road at some point. Uh, the Town Talk Radio Show is live every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. You can find us on uh, the TuneIn Network. That's uh, the app or the website. Uh, and uh, search for us there, and you can um, hear us live every Tuesday. But most people actually come in through the uh, podcast app on iTunes or through iHeartRadio on any platform or any browser They've got an app, the whole deal. So uh, we've massed a huge following. Over 300,000 of you tuned in last week and downloaded or listened to at least one podcast. So big thank you to everyone who's showing up here regularly and engaging with us. And speaking of engaging with us, we'd love to have your questions, your comments, your your hearts, your likes, all that stuff on Twitter. So don't forget to send us your questions or your comments. Um, by uh, going to twitter and uh, finding us i use the hashtag talent talk so if you have a question pop that in add in hashtag talent talk all one word my producer mike will feed me the best questions and of course we love to review other comments and suggestions and things as they come in but let's go ahead and get to today's show now that we've gotten all the business out of the way Um, my guest today will include len carter the vice president of hr at FreePoint health network and then we'll have a Catherine Matisse is a consultant and trainer for Civility Partners. Um, so uh, Len will be joining me uh, here uh, at the beginning. So um, Len, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Glad to be here. Well, tell everyone a little bit about yourself and your current role as a VP of HR for the uh, Free Point Health Network.
2: Sure. Thank you. Uh, first, let me get the important stuff out of the way. I'm married to a beautiful woman who has gave me three wonderful children, so I'm now officially out of the doghouse all right good uh, <laughs> <laughs> i came to uh, freeport uh, in 1992 i've been in human resources since 1979 and came here from children's hospital in columbus ohio uh freeport uh, health network is an integrated health care system with about 1500 staff uh, we serve about 1500 patients a day for their health care needs in a four and a half county area we're about uh an hour and a half west of o'hare airport in chicago so we're on the the western half of northwestern half of illinois well so
1: uh, you said you kind of been there since 1992 which is an impressive amount of time to be with one organization and uh, during that time you've definitely seen some changes i'm assuming in everything from recruiting methods to the role of hr in that kind of strategic map of the company maybe the way that employees are handled through the development and, uh, of, of programs or different processes. So maybe what for you has been the positive changes that you've seen in human resources?
2: Well, uh, you are you are correct. that, I, From my experience, I've seen the uh, full paper and manual side of the HR function and now see the technology side. And there's been significant uh, changes in all facets of HR. But I think one of the more exciting ones in the last, Probably 10 years has been the uh, new model in HR, the HRBP strategic model, and with that model, you're able to uh, really have your your key HR people on the floor in the departments, working with those departments to help them achieve their strategic goals, which are tied to the organizational goals, and in with that, you have a a. Uh, a center of expertise, which are your specialists, like your comp benefits, recruitment, and so forth, that support those those individuals out there. We went to it in uh, early 2011, and uh, the advisory board states we're one of about 10% of healthcare organizations in the country that have moved to that. In private industry, it's much more common, probably about 40%, I would say, from the research I've done, but it's a, it's a great model, and I think really... Makes HR an integrated strategic uh, integrated strategic uh, or group within the organization. So, if you're using that process, does that make HR itself
1: more accessible? Does that make HR more accountable and a part of what all the different divisions are doing? Maybe you could talk a little bit deeper about what are some of the maybe the specific things that are kind of happening on a day to day basis with that model.
2: We have three, in our organization, we have three HR business partners, and those three are all masters prepared, and their role is to, on a daily basis, be out with the department directors, with the staff in the areas. Each one has a number of assigned staff and and departments, and really help them drive their goals for achievement towards the end of the year, help them make movements, help them make decisions. In the older days of HR, you'd always sit around your office and you'd wait for somebody to bring up an issue, then you'd go address it. Now with the technology and the data and the uh, reports that we have, we take information out to them prior to problems are developing. We're able to address where we may have uh, problems in our talent plan, uh, which includes performance assessments where we may be having issues with the quality of hire, over a year or two period of time, things of this nature. And, how, and then we work on how we get the staff in the department involved as well as the director and the leader. And since we put that in, um, we at this organization do uh, quarterly uh, surveys amongst uh, for interdepartmental satisfaction for those non-clinical areas. And uh, there has been one person at this point so far that has spoken negatively about the new model. They really like it. It's helping them, you know, the leaders in their daily work lives.
1: And so it sounds like it's really a model of being, you know, far more proactive. Uh, like you said, not sitting at your desk waiting for problems to walk in the door, but getting out there and, and being proactive. And it sounds like a fantastic model that I've not heard a lot of people maybe kind of articulating it the way you do. I mean, certainly they must have people doing those types of things. But having that particular model is kind of really fascinating. and. I'm sure that's probably one of the things that uh, that you're doing that caused you to be honored by the leadership for leadership excellence uh, development program uh, recently. So maybe you could talk us a little bit about what was involved in that program that allowed you guys to be recognized uh, for your leadership there. Sure,
2: and this really goes back to the early 2000s. Early in 2003 and 2004, we were beginning to see that. Uh, Our HR metrics were beginning to provide some early warning signs uh, to human resources that uh, we began to experience an increase in turnover in the organization. Our exit interviews indicate areas of uh, uh, concern tied to leadership. Uh, Our staff survey in 2004 uh, was flat, and we've always been on the, uh, the upward trend in our surveys. So it was flattening. We saw some negative declines in our leadership aspects. And then we also participated in the Great Place to Work survey and saw the same results there. So we began to analyze what was going on uh, in the organization, and there have been a a number of changes uh, during that two-, three-year period where we brought in new leaders, some leaders retired, some leaders moved on, so forth like that. It became a real simple problem uh, of what was happening we found that 53% of our staff in this organization were being led by individuals who really didn't have a lot of leadership experience. We knew at that point that we had to do something because we have at this organization uh, evidence-based leadership standards. Uh, The research done by Kuz's and Posner's is very strong here and we believe in it. And so we built our leadership standards around those and with the new leaders coming in, they weren't getting that exposure. They, they were getting educated uh, and oriented on how to lead at this organization, what it took, and so forth. With us. So we developed a uh, 22-month program. We did a lot of research out in the market and uh, some of the major universities and corporate universities, and we came up with a 22-month uh, program. There's 18 months of actual curriculum that went on. For each of the six leadership standards, the course was three months in duration, and we, had, we broke the um, leadership team into three 18 individual pods, or cohorts, and um, started at different times through the organization. CEO and everybody was involved in these. And in addition to normal classroom teaching, we had a lot of national speakers uh, here presenting on, the, on these areas. We, all, they, we also did leadership assessments. Uh, literature and web based programming, we had application journals, we did team projects and present in front of the teams and so forth like that. Some web baits that went with it. And after that 22, 20 months of, of education, we then look back to see for that next year and then a few years after that, what impact that had. Did it did that program have the impact we wanted? And and for example in some of the areas like turnover we saw a uh, over a 17% reduction in turnover. After that, we saw um, a 58%. That's significant. 58% in vacancies. Uh, our staff survey results jumped almost 7% in our our next survey. Our uh, patient loyalty scores were around 11% higher. Our revenue per FTE uh, was uh, about almost 11% higher. Also, so we we. We felt the outcomes, uh, the, the goals going into the program were met. The outcomes proved that. And we actually went on to develop two things further from that. One is instead of that long course, uh, we now have a six-month onboarding program for leaders. And the leadership standards are included in that, that six month, including readings, web-based articles, how we onboard somebody is, is tied to those leadership standards. And then the second thing we did was we developed a uh, Physician Leadership Institute, which was a two-year program designed to help physicians become leaders at FHM Better Leaders. And we put, uh, I think, 22 physicians through that first series of programs. So it was quite successful, and we were very proud of it. And Sherman's mothers recognized the work that, that had been accomplished here.
1: So what were some of the maybe um kind of side stories then as you're going through that process you, you, you knew you had a group of leaders that some of them at least were not uh really up to up to standard and so this program is really trying to address them did you see that maybe they all just got better and, the, and so leadership got better or did a, maybe certain ones of them get a lot better and others either opted out or you had to choose for them to, to be out because they didn't didn't make changes they didn't improve their leadership so I guess the question is Is how much of that program made your people better and then how much of that maybe got you to realize who wasn't in the right position that shouldn't have been in the leadership position and so you had to make a change there and bring in somebody else who could do a better job.
2: Two pieces of that. The first thing is it allowed us through the cohort process to become closer and a better team as leaders and understand each other better and we know... What our weaknesses because we did 360s and so forth like that. We know what our, what our weaknesses were, where our opportunities to grow, where our strengths were. So we were paired with individuals that we could work with. Who say my strength is uh, coaching, and someone's uh, area of improvement need to be coaching. I could work with them one on one during during this course and so forth. So we, we partnered, partner. So we we became better teammates, if you will, through this process and and. Almost everybody that went through it did just fine. Uh, there was no one that, that because most of the changes that occurred in leadership occurred uh, prior to this course, and, and it was part of the reason that we we developed this is because we saw uh, the new people coming in that had didn't have the strength in leadership or knowledge based on the the workforce standard leadership standards that we have here.
1: So one of the things that has become kind of more prevalent over time, and certainly your began to address it by having better leadership, but is this, you know, kind of focus within HR on employee engagement. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've gone through challenging times of recessions and uh, really engagement strategies became really even more important as we were asking more of people, sometimes even more of them by giving them less money. Really, there's kind of this creative part and other ways that employees can be engaged, can be happy than just throwing more money at them. Um, so what do you feel the most effective strategies for employee engagement, whether this is a, a, answers broadly or might just be specific for your organization? Where are you seeing the best
2: kind of applications to that, uh, to that area? Sure. Um, my, my personal opinion is in, with the HR profession overall, and I've seen a lot of growth and I'm really proud of the leaders I'm seeing developing, in the field today. My personal opinion is that we tend to look to the market to see what some other people are doing and say, okay, that's best practice, so we'll just bring it here and that'll work here and attempt to make it our own, and those typically fail. And and I don't believe in just using one initiative, but instead uh, trying to determine the best initiatives that will impact the staff and ultimately the organization. It's also important that a number of initiatives have life cycles which is important from an HR perspective because you always have to keep looking at what the data is showing you in HR about the workforce and how you need to respond to it and what things can respond to it. Um, Some of the specifics I would mention would be performance goals that are developed at the, uh, the top of the organization and are cascaded down throughout the organization to the individual so the individual knows by line of sight how their work and what they do impacts the organization and their goals. That way they're involved in the process. They understand what's going on. Other things include frequent recognition of individuals and team contributions. Utilizing preference assessments, interdepartmental initiatives, and and just the preference assessments uh, um, when it always gets a tickle out of people. I use myself as an example. When I came here in 1992, we had an individual that was very good as a technician and worked on a project and did outstanding work. So being the the, uh, good HR person I was, I went to the gift shop. I bought a big bouquet of fresh flowers. I brought it to her in her office. She was very appreciative, said nice things. Uh, Next day, she called in sick. She called in sick because she's allergic to flowers. (laughs) <laughs> but she didn't want to tell me that she was alert. So I didn't know what I didn't know. And so from that point on, I began to use a preference survey. So when, when, when I hire somebody or I'm talking to them on their quarterly assessments, I'm asking, what what motivates you? What, what, how do you like to be recognized? Uh, and we've gotten that to be used almost housewide now. And uh, it's, a, it's a good way of starting off and getting off to the right start with individuals. You have growth and development approaches uh, where you have an emerging leaders program. You take individuals, you through, through, put through that type of program, or you provide education assistance and educational coaching for uh, helping individuals get degrees for, for uh, new professions, or you provide mentorships and have staff become mentors to others. Um, from the executive side, you know, you, you can have them demonstrate the values and the commitment to the mission of the organization. Um, They can do rounding, uh, employee-focused rounding, where they they go around and talk to individuals on a regular basis. Doing handwritten thank-you notes. It may sound crazy, but we have a standard here that every leader in this organization will do at least one handwritten thank-you note for somebody each month. You say, well, just one. Well, that's 75 to 90 uh, thank-you notes to go out to 1,500 potential people. So that's a lot over a period of time, and, and staff really appreciate that. And we actually have seen the things we've done in recognition responded to positively on the staff survey. They they, they see that it's happening, it is, and they recognize.
1: That. Some of those things are fundamental to wanting for employees wanting to stay with the company over a long period of time. Is it, you know, finding the right way to recognize them and to say thank you? Is that, you know, it, it, along with the what you guys are doing from a providing sort of a proper leadership as well 100% um i,
2: I don't think that for when it comes to, to staff wanting or employees wanting to stay somewhere else i think that it's pretty universal in most organizations sometimes we overcomplicate it but i think uh they want to feel valued and that the work they do make a difference uh they want growth and development opportunities and that doesn't mean upward promotions all the time. That means give me a project or give me some research, something that expands my skills, makes me more valuable, not only to for within the organization, but you know, uh, for the, the product or the service we're providing. And then they want good culture, good peers, a good leadership. And but I go back to the first one. They want to feel valued. Recognition is one way of showing that value to them. You know. So then we kind of then look at. If
1: you got good talent in there, um, your leaders are doing what they should be doing. you you know, we've got this kind of baseline of things you talked about. Then what sometimes companies look to is how do we then optimize? How do we get people to be at their absolute best? Uh, you know, to get the most out of them, and I mean that in a good way. I don't mean you know that you work them to death, but to to get their best. Um, Contributions to their best focus, their, their best energy when they're when they're working, uh, to really make sure that the investments that you're putting into them as a company are really paying off. So, are, are there
2: anything different than what we've talked about that you do from that perspective? A couple of things. I, I think first, for any organization, if they're going to start using uh, terms like top talent and all this, they need to have a talent plan for the organization, which helps them identify what is the top talent, how do you measure, how do you know, is it just, well, that person smiled, and I think they're good, so they're top talent, or do you have a mechanism in place uh, that identifies, uh, and they, in addition to that talent plan, we also need to establish a, a succession plan, and the succession plans usually for leadership, but maybe also we put critical positions within the organization, and let me give you an example. For any healthcare organization, registered nurses are critical. You can't function without them. Uh, and this is a great profession, which about every 10 years goes through a cycle of shortages of individuals in that field. We rather, as organizations, spend dollars on development than recruitment. So therefore, we created two programs with the same outcome. It's a certified nursing assistant to RN, along with a licensed practical nurse to RN program. Both programs reduce the full-time hours to part-time for these individuals that are accepted into the program, uh, and it pays their education costs to obtain their associate degree in nursing to become a registered nurse. In addition, uh, the educational support provides them their full salary during the education time, so those hours they back down so they can go to school, They now have a full salary during that period of time. And for that, uh, they sign a a four year contract with the FHN and and each year works off 25% of that that agreement. I can tell you over 18 years uh, with these programs, maybe three or four individuals at most have not been able to keep their commitment for the four years. And so, and we put in uh, probably 80 to 100. Approaching 100 people through this, this, this program. So we're developing internally, we're building loyalty with that staff, and we're making that commitment with that staff. And I think it's important also that you, when you make these investments and look at staff, you also look at the social economic aspects. Uh, in healthcare, there, there's a number of, um, nationally, about 85% of the workforce is females, and there's a number of single mothers. And if you talk to individuals, which we did, and and say, "Why don't you go back to school?" The simple answer is, "I can't stop working to go back to school. I I financially can't do that." So we've made we've we've bridged that gap so that they can go to part time, still receive their full time salary, then come back as a registered nurse and have a good, solid career as a, a nursing professional here. So that's one of the ways that we've identified our our talent, our top talent, and how we we develop them further. Well, that's
1: uh, some great stuff that you put together for us today, Lynn. I really appreciate you being on the show. Uh, We're just about out of time. I want to make sure if people are interested in learning more about your organization or maybe they want to come work for you, what's what's the best way for them to do that?
2: Well, individuals can uh, learn about our our organization on the website, www.fhn.org. Or uh, they can uh, reach out to me at lcarter at fhn.org. I'm a strong believer in information exchange and with colleagues, and we'd be happy to have a conversation with anyone at any time.
1: Well, then, again, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. My Hopefully pleasure. Thank you, Chris. i you come back at some point and give us an update. We'd love it. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right, we'll be back after this quick commercial break, and our second guest, Catherine Matisse. <laughs>
3: higher when it comes to pioneers in their respective industries we all know the apples starbucks and trader joe's of the world in the realm of recruiting Decision Toolbox is the industry's best-kept secret. With 90% of their business from referrals and repeat customers, for over 20 years, Decision Toolbox's U.S.-based team of recruiters, sourcers, professional writers, quality personnel, and tech support has perfected a Six Sigma approach to talent management.
1: Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. Don't forget, you can find us on uh, iTunes. You can find us on iHeartRadio. You can find us on talenttalkradio.com, Facebook, Twitter, wherever. So if you'd like to interact with us, please, uh, please find one of those mediums and uh, let us know what you think. And, uh, of course, if you have a suggestion on the guest, we'd love to hear it. Up next uh, here on Talent Talk, we'll have Catherine Matisse. She's a consultant and trainer for Civility Partners. I've had the privilege of hearing her speak as well. And she's going to be a guest uh, or a speaker at our upcoming OCHR Summit, which is, well, a weekend, a day away here from this live broadcast. And we're looking forward to that as well. So uh, don't forget to tweet your questions to us right now at peopleg 2 Use that hashtag talent talk. But let's go ahead and get Catherine going. Uh, Catherine, welcome.
4: Hi there. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So why
1: don't you share with everyone a little bit about yourself and what your company does?
4: Sure, I'll just jump right into how I got interested in workplace bullying, which is my niche. That's what everybody wants to know. It's kind of a random, interesting little niche to be in. Uh, basically, I was the director of human resources for an organization where we had a bully, and I personally felt bullied, and so did a lot of other people in the organization. And uh, so, as a director of human resources, I was dealing with the brunt of all of the problems that this person created, and during that time started getting my masters degree and I wrote a paper on or I, I was gonna write a paper on something like toxic leadership or something around, you know, this person that I worked with and that's when I came across the phrase workplace bullying. And so basically everything I did in graduate school was on that topic and I kind of joked that I have a, a master's degree in workplace bullying just because I you know, every paper I did was on that. My thesis was on that, um, and then I graduated from getting my master's and decided I had all this knowledge in my head that other people and organizations would likely find useful. So I started Civility Partners. Um, so I'm a, a workplace bullying consultant. I help organizations solve the problem of bullying, and ultimately, I help them create a positive workplace culture. So I'm a culture consultant in the end. So that's a
1: little about me. Well, and where there's a need, there's a an entrepreneur like yourself ready to to, to fill it. So
3: that's
1: It's right. a, a good end to a bad bad beginning. It sounds like, um, but maybe how is workplace bullying defined? We have people that might get mad at us, or we might disagree with them. That's not necessarily bullying. So, what are the types of things that are typically occur as a result of, of that? Maybe maybe we can kind of define it. What does that look like?
4: Sure. So. In response to the first part in terms of what it is or how do we define it, there's three pieces to the definition. The first is that we're talking about repeated behavior. So you're right, someone yelling once or twice or having a bad day or something that's not bullying. We're talking about repeated behavior that's going on for long periods of time. And, of course, researchers have to quantify things to study it. So research, actually, they say that it happens at least once a week for a period of six months you know, for it to kind of count as bullying. So repeated is the first piece. The second piece is that it causes psychological power imbalance between the bully and the target. So you have these two people who have a relationship and over time the bully is sort of pushing on the target and these bullying behaviors become more and more frequent. They're more and more aggressive and this psychological power happens where the target comes to realize this person has power over me and the bully realizes I have power over this person. And that, that piece, this psychological power imbalance, is really the key to looking at workplace bullying because it's not conflict. You know, in conflict, there is not a psychological power imbalance. There's a disagreement, but there's not a power imbalance. Both people have a voice. You know, workplace bullying, That that's really the defining factor is the psychological power imbalance. And then finally, bullying causes harm to the people who experience it, and it causes harm to the people who witness it. And so they're feeling anxious and depressed and um, sad and afraid, and, of course, stress, and stress causes physical problems. So those are the three pieces. It's repeated, it causes psychological power imbalance, and it causes harm. In terms of the behaviors, There's actually three buckets, and I'll give you a lot of great examples that I've seen over the course of my time doing this. So one is aggressive communication. That's the first bucket of behaviors. And so, you know, nasty emails, getting in someone's personal space, pointing your finger, you know, at their face or right in their face. Um, yelling being snarky you know doing things that people can see so one example actually I was a subject matter expert for a, or an expert witness on a case against a large retailer and the manager there would get right in people's faces and so of course they would back up as he's getting in their personal space and he would stick his finger in their nose in order to prevent them from backing up so you know that's an example of aggressive communication the second bucket is humiliation. So, ridiculing someone, spreading rumors, pointing out mistakes in public is a one I hear a lot. Um, you know, obviously cyberbullying, doing things that embarrass someone online. So, and then, and actually, one one story or one example of that, uh, I this actually happened in an office I worked in. Um, the CEO, when somebody made a mistake, he would send out these really scathing emails and CC everyone. So everyone knew about the mistake and about how mad he was. Um, and then finally, manipulation. That's the third bucket of bullying behaviors. And that is the hardest to see. It's the hardest to pinpoint because it's very under the radar, very passive aggressive. So doing things like removing someone's pertinent job responsibilities without telling them why, regularly assigning jobs that are or tasks. That are really far beneath someone's level of competency or really far above their competency. And obviously, stuff like that happens. You know, we're all doing things that are below our competency. But when, if it's a constant stream of these assignments without any explanation, that can be bullying. Um, You know, giving someone so much work that they're going to fail. So one example, I I was asked to write a letter for a woman who was filing a complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission or the EEOC, and in her office, everybody had, they were all caseworkers, and they all had about 30 cases, and this woman had 60. The manager had given her 60, so she had double the workload. And when she would ask her manager for overtime approval, the manager would say no. And then she said, well, can we farm out some of my cases? I have doubled the workload. The manager said no. Um, she says, can I get an assistant? The manager says no. And then her performance evaluation time rolls around, and shes uh, it's, it says on her evaluation that she's not performing. She's not able to keep up with her demands, and she's being recommended for demotion. So she was essentially set up to fail. So those are the three buckets, aggressive communication, humiliation, and manipulation and that's my very long answer to your question
1: <laughs> <laughs> well and I noticed in a lot of your responses or examples it was people in positions maybe above someone so from a management perspective and those are certainly I guess what we would think of in a typical situation because they naturally have some power over somebody else um, even before any bullying has happened but I'm also curious about: Is do you ever see it in the reverse? Are there people who are either bullying peers or bullying their managers and holding some, trying to, you know, use some sort of power they have over them to get what they want? And, and is that very common?
4: Yeah. So actually, in my own situation, when I first started getting into this topic because of my own experience, um, the bully was the director level as well. So we were peers, and he was bullying me. So that's peer-to-peer bullying. And he definitely bullied the president of the organization, which is why the behavior was never curbed. Because I think the president was ultimately afraid of interacting with this person, or was conflict avoidant. So this bully was definitely bullying up, and then just going back to research, um, lots and lots and lots of research articles always kind of come to these same numbers. That seventy percent of the time, the bullying is a, a superior bullying down. And then 30% of the time, it's either peer to peer or someone bullying their superior.
1: That's a good number to know so that people are kind of aware that it does come from different places and, you know, different, whether it's top down or bottom up or, you know, across the level, that it, it can happen, you know, from many different ways. But maybe we talk about something, you know, we look at it from the other perspective here, and that is, you know, in the absence of bullying, we typically then would have a more positive workplace. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what, what does a positive work environment look like or what are some of the things that you suggest that you know are sort of a part of that plan um, to either prevent or to at least uh, partially eliminate that, those chances of that bullying behaviors occurring.
4: Sure. So, you know, my company's name is Civility Partners, and that's because I really believe in that word, civility. And so, yeah, if you're going to remove bullying, you have to replace it with something. And in my opinion, that's at least civility, at the very least. And, when, you know, so when you have a civil work environment, people may not necessarily all just love each other. And, you know, it doesn't have to be that every single person you work with is your best friend, but you do have to at least treat each other with civility. And and when there's civility, people talk to each other and they communicate. You know, if there's fear and anxiety that comes with interacting with someone, then you're just not going to interact with them. So you're not communicating. You're not making the best decisions because you're not, you know, working with them. So when you have civility, you have better communication and better relationships. And that means that people are making better decisions because they're talking to each other about their decisions. They're learning from each other. They feel free to be innovative. Um, and when you have those things, then you have people who are engaged and motivated because they feel valued at work. Um, which means that they're actually coming to work rather than calling in sick to avoid the bully. And you know, the, and when you feel engaged, then you're in, you're producing and you're awesome. Post- Positive customer service, and so ultimately, I think civility is absolutely tied to the bottom line and to achieving organizational goals. So, you absolutely have to have civility if you're going to achieve your goals. Why force your organization to jump through hoops, you know, to to achieve things you've set out to do? I think I've answered your question. Yeah.
1: yeah. (laughs) So, you know, we, we want to have civility, and we certainly want the workforce to be positive. Have, have you seen maybe examples of, you know, when, when that workplace does tilt towards the more negative? You know, what, what are some of the you know, maybe more problematic areas or places where the businesses can, can be damaged?
4: Sure. So when uh, there's bullying or negativity happening, certainly customer service is hurting because, you know, let's say that I go and interact with my boss who bullies me, and then I go pick up the phone that's ringing and there's a customer on the other end. I'm certainly not in the best mood, and I'm recovering from that conversation I just had with my boss. So my customer service is naturally going to suffer. Um, and, in fact, um, oh what is it, NIOSH, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, which is the research arm of OSHA, Um, which is a federal government agency, they found that 11% of targets are customers. So if you need a business case for solving bullying, you know, 11% of your customers are being bullied if (laughs) if you have bullies in your workplace. Wow. Um, Yeah, and and then, you know, just going back to my own experience, obviously, because I lived it, I, I absolutely did not speak to the person who I felt was a bully unless I absolutely had to. And I can guarantee you that I made decisions for the organization as a director without all of the information that I needed because that was safer and better for me psychologically than to, you know, go down the hall and talk to this guy. So if you wanted an office supply you had to ask him for it and The point of my story is that even to get something as simple as a pen or a Post-it pad, um, you know, was a process. I literally had to spend some time sort of ramping up and building up the courage to go down the hall and interact with this person. Um, So that's a a really simple example of, you know, time lost. It wasn't traumatic, but it shouldn't take me a half an hour to build up the courage to go and get a pen, you know. So just think about all the wasted time that happens when you have negativity in, in the workplace. Um, Well, and if you were
1: stuck at that job, I think I just would have went and bought my own pen and paper. But, you know, certainly certainly the example is valid. That feels like there's some command and control there that somebody wants to have. And I guess I'm curious because, you know, I've not been not very many times in my life been the victim of someone trying to bully me. So do you think that they tend to pick on those that are in a weaker position or they view as weaker or do these people tend to have these behaviors across the board, albeit maybe a bit more with certain people, but, you know, is, is their behavior sort of happening across the board?
4: Uh, yeah, so what happens is they sort of start to bully anybody around them and for power. You know, they're, they're looking for ways to increase feelings of power, and um, they sort of pick on everyone. And then the people who sort of give the green light by not speaking up for themselves Um, you know, they'll keep bullying those people. They'll keep pushing on them a little bit. So it starts off as a very minor sort of a behavior, maybe rolling eyes in a staff meeting or, you know, getting a little close. Some little minor sort of act of power. And then they sort of gauge who reacts in what way. and, And everybody likes the path of least resistance. And so then they start bullying those people who perceived as a threat. So that person they're picking on is likely a really high performer and the bully feels threatened by that or the maybe the leaders really like that person and the bully feels threatened by that Um, and on the flip side it could be someone who's made a huge mistake and they feel threatened by that as well so i actually coached a woman who um Really, really, really believed this other person was just major incompetent and she couldn't figure out why nobody else in the entire company saw him that way. So she bullied him and it was because she felt stuck and ultimately she cared about the organization and that's why she cared about this incompetence. Was she handling it correctly? No. Um, you know, and we had to have these conversations about that. It, it didn't matter if she perceived him as incompetent you know it's not her call but you know ultimately it was about feeling threatened by his incompetence
1: (laughs) right so it can get sort of fairly complicated as well because I imagine someone is just all in out you know being a bully that, that if you have the right strategy and everything you might be able to to attack that but if it's far more subtle and, and know, secretive is the right word, but just, you know, less out there. That over time can seem like it'd be extremely frustrating for whoever it is that's involved in that and whether or not they're going to be able to be happy in their position and continue to, to, to work well and, and to be happy, like you said, not stressed and then, you know, leading to other problems.
4: Right. And and that's why, you know, I, over time, I've become a culture consultant because bullying is under the radar. It is manipulative. It is passive aggressive. So it is hard to spot. And people who feel bullied, you know, they, they find me online all the time and they call and they have these stories about how horrible their life is and they can't get anybody to see it and they can't you know hr doesn't quite understand what's going on and and they feel confused and lost and am i going crazy um and so because of the nature of bullying it it has to be about culture because if you have an organization that's got a positive culture that's focused on respect um you know that that that's the social norm to be respectful then bullying can't thrive because it won't be you know it won't be allowed it won't be tolerated and that's ultimately why bullying happens because people tolerate it nobody says anything about it and so yeah to to your point it has to be the resolution has to be a different culture
1: well one of our favorite questions to ask our guest is what book are you reading right now and can you tell us about it
4: Well, I'm actually working on my own book right now, so that's the main book I'm reading these days over and over and over again as I proofread it, Um, and it's called Seeking Civility and should be out shortly. But another book I'm reading that's not mine is called Practicing Positive Leadership, and it's by a gentleman named Kim Cameron, and uh, he is a positive psychology guy, and he's written a lot of books about creating positive workplaces.
1: Well, that sounds like a great book. I remember we'll have a blog recap of this for everyone listening on our website at PeopleG2.com and go to the blog section and then to Talent Talk, and we'll have a complete summary of both for our guests and things that they said, and then any books they mentioned. we'll have a link there for you so you can grab it for yourself. Catherine, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show, and I'm really looking forward to having you speaking next week at our... our event. Uh, What what will be your your general topic that uh, people might be expecting you to to talk about then?
4: Uh, At the OCHR conference, I'm going to give you my 10 steps to solving bullying, and I can guarantee 100% if you follow my 10 steps, you will not have workplace bullying anymore. So that's that's what I'm going to talk about.
1: That's quite a promise. So hopefully we have a few more tickets left. If you're interested, you can contact us directly at peopleg 2 uh, and we'll be happy to to do that, but we'll see you next week, Catherine. And, and if people are interested in learning more about what you're you're doing, or if they maybe want to hire you to come in and help them, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you?
4: Um, my my web address is civilitypartners. dot com, and my email address is Catherine at civilitypartners. dot com, and that's C A T H E R I N E, Catherine at civilitypartners. dot com. So. And, of course, you can find me on Twitter, Kat <laughs> All
1: right. Well, again, I'm looking forward to seeing you again uh, next week and having you speak. And really appreciate uh, you taking the time to be on the show. And hopefully we can uh, have you come back in the future as well and give us an update.
4: Sounds good. Thanks for having me. And I'll see you next week.
1: All right. Thank you for all those who are listening. And hopefully you've gained something that you can use your own career. Don't forget to tune in next week. Our guests will include uh, Paul Fel- uh Falcone. I don't know if it's Falcone or Falcone. I guess we'll find out. But he's the VP of HR for Cox Communications. And uh, Delta Emerson, the president for Global Shared Services for Ryan. So uh, between now and then, uh, don't forget to, to check out our shows on iTunes and iHeartRadio. But till then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today.